If you will please allow your eyes to close or gaze down at a 45 degree angle. Again, if you missed the instruction in the first sit, no worries. I know it was a bit difficult to hear. Could you raise your hand if you're not hearing me well now? As I mentioned in the second sit, the Recap could be allowing the mind to rest in the heart. (coughs) This is the prompting of Sri Ramana Maharshi. We could also say allowing the attention to sink in its source. If we meditate with the fuel of a busyness to be a better person, with the striving to be a better person. And then on this retreat, we talked about the pseudo Zen master. So fill in the blank with more perfect concentration or more pure thoughts. If we, if we meditate from this attempt to be a better person, from this striving, then we'll always be striving. If we meditate because we're in love with the direct experience of resting in our luminous being, then we will always be in love. Are there any questions? You said rest in the heart. What's the alternative? Mm, Like where else might we rest? Correct. 
Well, tell me a bit, if you would. Um, would you mind saying your name? Would you mind telling me your name? My name is Dainan. Hi, Dainan. Did I say it right? Yes. Okay, great. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience of where your attention tends to rest. My attention generally tends to rest in my mind, and by my mind, I would say the inner voice. Um, and then I sometimes uh, struggle a bit. Of, uh, hey, quiet down up there. <laughs> and so I assume, now this is an assumption, that when you say rest in your heart, it's instead of in the mind. I and think the that heart would be that open, clear space. I think that would be uh, what's significant to me about your statement is that that's what arose for you. That's very significant to me because that suggests that to me, a type of medicine for you in your practice right now would be to notice when there's a conditioned tendency to have the mind be busy, and then to does anyone know that experience in practice where you're sort of um, you're fiddling with the mind, but all in the name of practice? So I'm noticing these thoughts, and then I'm letting go of them, and then I'm returning to the breath. But it's all happening up on the surface of the water. I like to ask at this point in time, is it, am I revealing too much, or are you all with me? <laughs> OK, so it's. Um, to me, what's significant about what you're saying is that you, re you recognize that as a habit or a pattern. So for example, I'm, I'm counting the breath. I recognize the attention has wandered off. I notice where it's gone. I, I come back to the breath. But I'm, I'm maybe having some dialogue about how my concentration is not so good today. I, I should have had Summer Richard's oolong tea. I'm struggling <laughs> with torpor. Okay, so. So we're, we're sort of, it might even sometimes be a very, still in a very subtle conversation about what perfect practice looks like or pure, and how pure intention manifests. And one of the things we've been looking, on, uh, during, looking at during this retreat is how that can tend to keep an illusion of a self that's separate from life in place. Right? It's got something to do, always something to work on. You're a continual project. Now it's in the name of someday. How far away is it? It's like that carrot. Someday your true nature will be available to you. Now that's not inherently implied in this approach. I'm merely speaking to some of the things that were conditioned some of the places in my own practice, I can see that I've been conditioned to, to struggle along the way. So constant refinement, constant work. And as you point out, that's all happening here. So to go back to your insight, there was something significant for you about recognizing that what we're returning to doesn't live in that same domain. Mm -hmm. Would you like to say more about your experience of where it does live? That's a good question. Um, 
I can't say where that space is because it, it's every place. It's every place. That's a very important point about it. It's not, even to say the heart, I, I always like to mention the heart of awareness because if you were to think, oh, okay, mind's here, but we're, the right place to be now is the heart, so I've got to sink the mind to the heart. It's not located like that, is it? I, I, I've experienced it as an open, clear space. It's always there. It's it's just that I get hung up in internal thinking. If I recognize that and let go of it, I can always return to that open, clear space because it's always there. So that, I think, the heart instead of the mind. Yes, this open, clear space is always there. To me, what you're describing is that when you get identified with the conditioned mind, you think you leave that space. You perceive that you've left what actually can't ever be left. But we perceive that we've left it, therefore we suffer. So remembrance becomes a really good time, doesn't it? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's important to acknowledge remembrance can be an, a deeply joyful time. Has anyone in this room ever struggled with uh, attaching a conditioned belief to your practice that this is very, very serious work and must be treated with a type of graveness at all times because that would show your sincerity? Not bad, not wrong, just helpful to see what we hook to practice. And it's kind of funny, isn't it? So we're going to do that so that we can then wake up and be joyful? Why not just be joyful? Why not know who we are and then give a tremendous amount of commitment, dedication, love, and attention to aligning our life with that deep recognition. What does that look like? It's a subtle practice that happens moment by moment by moment. How am I living my deepest love and understanding? How is my life in service to my deepest love? and understanding. And what gets in the way? What tends to veil that understanding? This doesn't have to be done from the seat of striving. It could be done from the recognition of our love, from, from love 
I hope that my expression in the world can be the freest and most um, inviting form of, of love. I hope that understanding can be received as love. So what does it look like to dedicate ourselves to that? Will we be able to access that through identifying with the inner critic, and berating ourselves for not being better meditators, or what? what who's, who's had a beating already this morning? Anybody? Anybody willing to name something, uh, a voice that you heard in your mind? Perhaps it felt believable, perhaps not. Should we pass the mic? Thank you. I just realized I want to make sure everyone can hear you. Can you tell me your name? Uh, Carrie. Carrie. Sorry. <laughs> so you um, did a beginner's mind yeah, retreat. Yeah, I did a beginner's mind, and it it really opened things up. And I've been practicing at home, but I haven't been here in a couple of months. So the berating was, you know, you know better. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, this this helps you maintain that space. And so the beating up was. You know, yeah. How how long would you say that that particular narrative has been going on? I I know exactly when the beating of it was going on, and that is because um, since the beginning of January. Okay. How helpful has that beating been to you? Not at all. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how I could it escape the beating. Um, my partner had a health crisis and um, was on oxygen. And so I got to the point where I was even afraid to leave for a couple of hours to come this far. I live here in Klatskanai. Um Yeah, I don't know why that had to be a beating on me. I, I don't know. Can we pause and acknowledge just how sad and tragic that is. Someone in my life is struggling and I'm out of pure love and dedication. I don't want to leave that person for long periods of time. Rather than having an internal compassionate mentor speak up and acknowledge the sincerity of your dedication, you're instead met with, you, you know better. It's just unkind. I'm kind of good in a crisis. I can hold it all together. And then when the crisis is over, it's kind of when I fall apart. So he is, he's done a remarkable healing. Yeah, they said it would take six months, but it's only been a month, and he's being able to breathe without oxygen. So this is all that pent-up yes. 
Hallelujah. Amen. It's, it's very important that we can allow ourselves the space to see clearly. And what you're experiencing right now is clarity about that process and the letting go of everything that you describe as, as pent up. I'm coming up on an important anniversary, too, next week. Would you like and to tell us about it? Two years ago, I had a stroke. And um, a stroke. Half my body couldn't talk, couldn't walk. And that's why even the walking meditation today was so joyful for me. But that's the point. I've gone through a rebirth, gone through the two years. I'm excited for what's next. I made it through a couple of traumas, and they weren't traumas. The stroke turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. And a lot of people don't understand that, but there's a lot of people that write books about how even Kurt Douglas, who just passed away, <laughs> what I was struggling with <laughs> that probably caused the stroke <laughs> was I was trying to figure out mindfulness. <laughs> Let me tell you, be careful what you pray for, because <laughs> nothing makes you more mindful than a stroke. Well, you you just got thrown in the deep end of <laughs> what it means to be present. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the blessing this monastery has been, even just its presence. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, uh, the monastery opened up very close to when I came here, and I've kind of always known it was there. Mm -hmm. And the weekend retreat. <laughs> I now can meditate easily at home for half hour, 45 minutes. And it is usually joyful. And even when it's not, it's not. And yeah. that's okay. <laughs> it's so, what you're pointing to is so important that you recognize that it's possible to have a practice and that there's a place that's holding down the capacity for you to do that. So avail yourself of that as you're able with no beatings. The less beatings there are, the more we'll be drawn to practice out of love. Yeah. And then you won't be able to keep it away. You won't be able to shut it off. You won't, yeah. everything in your life becomes practice. Yeah. Un until this last month, I was feeling that. Mm -hmm. And I still got to sort out why I shut it down, why I couldn't be the caregiver. And yeah, I'll sort it out. Or not. Or 
<laughs> and I'll beat myself up tomorrow. <laughs> just, first of all, end the beatings. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's just start baseline. And then leave with this um, remembrance that's at the heart of what you're sharing, which is that you value practice. And remember, you did, you learned something here. You did practice at home. Practice, it is, we are so lucky and fortunate to have places that support and nourish practice. And there is no such thing as being without it, should you wish to choose it in any moment. Practice isn't something someone else gives to you. Practice is not something that's held in a certain building. Practice is not held in a certain form. If I can only experience my true nature in rigorous zazen retreats, then that's going to be a fragile relationship with my true nature. Now, that doesn't mean don't do a ton of those retreats. If that's my love, if that's my call. But to not be confused about form. Because what's available to us is a peace that's not fragile. An understanding, a saturation in our direct experience of true nature that's not fragile. That we recognize as unbreakable because that is the fundamental nature of our true nature. Thank you. Thank you. What else? Please. I don't really understand what you mean when you say that we can't leave awareness or this open field. And maybe another way to get to that <coughs> question is, um, so I, f I feel like a, like a child with a new toy with this kind of meditation. And I noticed something today where, so we're not directing attention like, like a beam of light, but we're just like resting it like it's um, a bowl filled with light. And so objects come and go. So far, so good, and, and maybe there are sensations, maybe there are sounds. Um, and sometimes I get hooked in a thought, and I hook it, and I go back to the bowl. And then I notice that it's like the bowl started getting cloudy with mist, sleep. And I went into sleep, and it felt like I completely left that place. It seems to me that if I'm asleep, I'm fully not aware. Maybe sleep is just one of the ways in which I can leave that open space. So that's my question. Tell me about your experience of leaving awareness. Where, where does that? And, and by awareness, I could also substitute that and say just pure consciousness. Tell, tell me about an experience that, that you, you, you experience, something that you experience as outside consciousness. I don't really 
know what consciousness is. Okay, no problem. Let's make it simple. Let's just focus on awareness. So are you, are you aware of your breath in this moment? Yes. Are you aware of um, sounds in this room? Yes. Are you aware of sensation in the body? Now, rather than focusing on the sensation or the sound or the breath, what happens when you give your attention to the awareness? Good. Does that awareness stay, stay there? You can close your eyes. Stay there. Does that awareness, do you experience that awareness as having edges or no edges? Do you experience it as something you could you could step out of and then come back into and tell us about that journey. Maybe. Try to leave awareness now. Close your eyes again. Well, if I could have power over my sleep, then maybe I could. So how do we know how do we know? This is a real question for you to explore. How, how do I know, how do you know, that when we're in deep sleep, we're not actually just resting in awareness as awareness, that we've been completely divested of objects. So there's, there's no longer attachment to sound, breath, sensation, story from the day, the inner critic. How do we know? When you wake up from deep sleep, how do you, how do you tend to feel? In the very first moments, I feel different. I feel sort of softer. Softer? Right? The world hasn't taken form yet, right? So there's something that feels softer. Do you ever feel like you, you wake up and then if you're paying attention, you can watch this sort of a download, a crystallization of identity yeah. that happens? Like, oh, yes. Anyone ever wake up and, and, and watch the mind? So what is there to worry about today? <laughs> I forgot what I'm, oh yes, oh thank you, I, I got it. And then you're on your way. What, what, what other ways does, do, do, can, we, can we watch identity crystallize? Worry is just one thing, what else happens? I remember my name, this is who I am, 
I hate broccoli. <laughs> or what, whatever, right? Responsibilities. Here are my responsibilities. planning, getting things set up, all activities which reflect identity. Not bad, not wrong, but you're describing that little space before all that happens. So what if that softness was a reflection like the perfume or the residue of having been divested of all of those objects, all identity, all, 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 all. It's a place worth exploring, isn't it? So are you saying that when I do get lost in my identity and my worries, I'm in the same sort of level of awareness or I'm as embedded in consciousness? Well, I think the important question is who, who gets lost? Who, who gets lost in the world of objects? Who gets lost in thinking mind? Who gets lost believing that everything the inner critic says is true? Who gets lost in hating broccoli? Is it our infinite unborn mind? Is it pure consciousness? Does our true nature travel on a journey of getting lost, but then through our hard work, it gets somehow magically put back into form? Well, that was definitely what I thought. That's why I'm here. I never thought about it in those terms, but yeah. It's, it's really worth exploring, isn't it? So just because the clouds pass over the sun, is the cloud going somewhere? I mean, is the sun going somewhere? So one way we could approach practice is to pay very close attention to the clouds. Ah, this is veiling the light of the sun. Ah, this is veiling the light of the sun. Ah, this form is in the way of the light of the sun. How grateful we are in practice. We could see that. Another approach could be, I'm just going to go straight to the sun. Recognize myself as the sun. Sit in the light of pure being, pure knowing, the knowing of awareness. In my experience, that it's all a joyous celebration all forms, all opportunities to know our true nature, to be knowingly our true nature. 
tending to the clouds, noticing, being aware of clouds, but knowing the clouds themselves, what could they, what could they be made of other than the same suchness that makes the sun? Do you know what I mean? Well enough. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to clarify or add? So much. <laughs> but I'll be patient. And I've had my meal for today. Then, then my best encouragement is to enjoy the meal. To know that you can't do this wrong. This isn't about figuring something out. Practice is a process of remembrance. anyone else like to share? Yeah, thank you. This is, continues to be extremely helpful. Um, I guess I kind of, so, so in turning that flashlight around or in, in resting in awareness, kind of, um, it, People are talking about it as a space, right, in which things occur. I think for me, it's like turning the flashlight around and like there's nothing there is maybe more the experience that I'm having. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a little to that. Yes. I'm going to play a little bit with that. Um, so. Again, just to go back to, I wonder, you know, it feels like there's nothing there to who or to whom, whichever is grammatically correct there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more that the, the whom is there, there is none. Like, yeah. Yes, here's my point. I, I was trying to support you in having a direct experience rather than just say what is arising for me, but I'm just going to say what's arising for me. So what's arising for me is the recognition that to my, uh, to the illusion of a self that's separate from life, it can feel like nothing, this colorless, empty space, and that that nothing to identity is threatening. It's, it's, it's not the thing I want to run towards. And we know this is true because look at our conditioned world. How much are we avoiding this? 
I, I love the quote. I apologize that I can't remember who said it. Um, All the world's problems are created by man's inability to sit in a room alone with himself. It's just an interesting way to reference how deeply conditioned we are to, uh, to avoid the very thing we actually all long for. We all have this in common. We all long. What, what do we long for most? Just popcorn style. What do we, what do we long for? Happiness. Happiness. Is there anyone in the room who doesn't know the longing to be happy? Connection, self-understanding, self-awareness, understanding unconditional love, knowing unconditional love. So all those things are qualities of our true nature. Peace, quality of our true nature. Rest, quality of our true nature. Focus arises within the brilliance of our true nature. But in my experience, we tend to want something like focus so that we can know our true nature. So focus is, as you can hear, as you can hear the theme of this is there is nothing wrong. So great, concentration practice, lovely, focus, wonderful. That's made of awareness. It's just helpful to not be confused that that awareness has ever gone anywhere or is at the end of a road somewhere. And to, again, to the illusion of a self that is separate from life, that emptiness or that void is distressing, maybe at best. Before I was a monastic, I took a meditation class in college. And if I had known that at the end of the meditation class, the final semester project was to spend, brace yourselves, 10 hours in silence and alone. If I'd known that, I would have dropped the class. It was a horrifying, when I found out that that's what the assignment was, I was horrified. It was deeply threatening to me. And I'll never forget it, because this was in a college course, so there was a grade for the meditation class. <laughs> so I, I wrote a paper about my 10 hours of silence. And I got like a B or a C or something. <laughs> because I wrote this whole paper about all these amazing creative things I did with my 10 hours. I wrote songs, and I danced, and I made things out of clay. And I like did all this amazing stuff. And then I wrote about a sentence about finishing the 10 hours of silence. I had never, that I know of, had 10 hours of silence unless I was like sick and sleeping or something. So at the end of that 10 hours, um, at the end of that paper, when I'd like made all these amazing things, I, there were a couple sentences about um, what happened in the shower. And it was like, I just wept and wept. And I, I felt sort of broken open. But I spent like two sentences on that. And I was like, yeah, the, the end. 
and I'm to this day, I've never, I've never, I can't even remember that teacher's name, but I, I hope someday I figure out how to track them down. Because to this day, I'm grateful. Because I was like, I'm grateful that they didn't give me an A. Because, <laughs> you know, I like to do things right. I thought I'd written this great paper, made all this cool stuff. And then I got this like B, or again, maybe it was even a C. But I was like, well, what is up with that? I didn't even talk to anybody. I followed the rules. But the teacher was trying to, what I take from it now, was the teacher was pointing to, um, there's something you're avoiding. You might want to look into that. And she was right. And I happen to be someone that wouldn't, in the conditioned realm, I would have kept avoiding if I hadn't put myself in a structure, if life hadn't put me in a structure. I don't feel that I chose to go to a monastery. I really feel that life stuck me there. There's truth on both sides of that, of course. But I remember very clearly saying, um, if, I, if I go to the monastery, I, I just want to make sure I won't be called a monk. Like, this is just a temporary thing. I'm just doing a little in between these two other things. I'm going to have a little practice time. Relate so much. Yeah. The conditioned temptation to avoid was severe for me. And it took the structure of the monastery to keep turning me back. I mean, there was nowhere else to go. And this was far away from things. And I didn't have a car. So <laughs> it was like, it was just, I was just there. When it got hard, I was just there. After six months, I remember I, I got a note. It was very, the silence there was very strict. So um, everything was communicated through notes. So I remember after six months, I got, I got a note that said, your, your time is about to end. Please write a note saying, if, you know, are you going to recommit to more time, or are you going to leave? And I remember I, I went out on the porch outside the Zendo, and I was so conflicted because I knew I hadn't even, I hadn't even scratched the surface of what was really possible with practice. But, I, my, but my life called. You know, the kids, the, I mean, I didn't have kids, but the vision. <laughs> yeah, I didn't just leave my kids for six months. <laughs> the vision, the kids, the husband, the life. And I was going to move to San Francisco, marry a dancer, have a dog named Dakota. I'm not kidding. I had it all planned out. It was like set. And it was very distressing to me to consider like, releasing the grip on that vision. And so what you're talking about was just this big nothingness void. And I didn't have, uh, I had much arising that suggested that I didn't have an interest in just diving into that. I'd had enough of a taste. All that said, I knew that I had to write back something on this note. So I flipped a coin. 
And I remember when it was in the air, I remember saying to myself, if it says leave, I'll do two out of three. <laughs> and it said stay. And of course, at that moment, I didn't need to flip it again. I'm glad it landed that way. So thank you for <laughs> <Me> being <too>. here. <laughs> Me too. I'm so sorry. I think I've run us over our time. I was going to give you another couple minutes here. This is called Great Vows in Monastery. And given all that you've said in the context of that, what's about? What's intention? Uh-huh. It's interesting, as you ask that, what arises for me is that even with my somewhat eclectic path, a, a practice that has contained monastic training, uh, um, countless Rupert Spira retreats, um, working with someone who's deeply seeped in understanding the chakra system, um, I can say that my vow has always been unchanging and that the vow to end suffering and support others in, in ending suffering out of gratitude, repaying a debt that can only be repaid with the same coin, that, that to me is a vow that it doesn't matter where we are or what we're doing. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a commitment that when we make it, we'll shine through everything we do. So perhaps what's most important for us is to find out how might my vow re reflect the most fundamental truth that I have access to, the most fundamental longing or the most fundamental knowing and understanding and most fundamental love because that will withstand all form, all circumstances, all moment, all time. And perhaps practice is just the realignment with that vow again and again, because clouds do tend to pass over the sun. And when that passage happens, it seems to me that we forget our vow. So the importance of remembrance is everything. Thank you.